0: Today's episode is brought to you by Renaissance. Renaissance has solutions to improve student outcomes. As a global leader in assessment, data, analytics, reading and math solutions for pre-k to 12 schools renaissance is committed to providing catholic educators insights and resources to accelerate growth and help all students build a strong foundation for success more than two-thirds of the nation's catholic schools rely on renaissance solutions to improve student outcomes renaissance is proud to partner with nca and catholic educators in our shared mission to help Catholic students achieve academic excellence. Welcome to the NCEA podcast. I'm your host today, Colleen mccoy sika Director of Professional Learning for NCEA. My guest today is Mr. Will Dennis, and he is a teacher of theology at Villa Joseph Marie High School in Holland, Pennsylvania, which is part of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Throughout my life, I've known hundreds of teachers and many of them have had more than one job, whether during the school year, sometimes it's a summer side hustle gig, but I've not encountered many situations as unique as Mr. Dennis's. Will is here today to tell us about how his two worlds and how his two passions collide and how the tenets of one job, his improv studio, combine with his day job teaching high school theology. well, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, Colleen. It's a, it's a real pleasure.
0: So can you tell the listeners a little bit more about your background and what brought you into teaching?
1: Yeah, so I have uh, sort of a circuitous route that brought me into uh, teaching in the classroom, at least. So I think, like most things, uh, we have these innate talents one way or another and i think you know from the beginning i was probably always drawn to the idea of teaching what i loved so much even in day to day interactions as a young person even in various positions that may not have been a classroom teacher as i paid attention kind of to what was happening where the holy spirit was moving things like that it was always about teaching and being in that uh, position so even when I was sort of making a life in theater, right, which I did for a a period of time, I was teaching as well. So I would be performing, but so much of my work came from education, from teaching, from building curriculum for uh, theater education, things like that. And so uh, sort of a combination of these two things, a deep love of theology and service and social justice and, a love for theater, and then the formation of both of those, right? So I studied theology in school and I worked for a short time as a campus minister. And then I also studied theater in school and I worked for a period of time as a performer. So these sort of two roads intersected at once. And then I found myself at an amazing place, Philip Joseph Murray High School, teaching theology. And I teach world religions and vocations. Which is even more interesting sort of when I think of that other job, right? That, that other line of work, that improv studio is this idea of figuring out who you are and who God created you to be while sort of pursuing your passions, right? And paying attention to those things that get you up in the morning, those things that seize your imagination. So here I am sort of having my imagination not only seized, but sort of gripped in a vice grip and sort of nurtured and juiced for everything that it's worth through improv, this thing I fell in love with. And it's making me, I think on most days, uh, a better teacher because I'm paying attention to this other vocation. And I think a lot of times we think of uh, vocations as a one and done and they're so evolving and they're so complementary. So I'm sort of living these two vocations, right? I run an improv studio in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And then I teach world religions and vocation and discernment, not too far away from the studio in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So it's it's one feeds the other. So my teaching makes me a better improviser and my improvising makes me a better teacher on most days. You know, there's days I'm a terrible teacher, and there's days I'm a terrible improviser too. Uh, but yeah, those two things sort of the balance of these things seemingly opposite are actually. I think making for a a somewhat complete human being and a somewhat complete vocation, if you will.
0: Well, I don't think I realized when we first spoke, I don't think I realized that you teach vocations. And so the way that this comes together, wow, Um, yeah, that's kind of a Holy Spirit combination right there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? Wow. As I always say to my girls, like the Holy, it's a Holy Spirit karate chop. I always say it like, mm-hmm. if I come in one day and throw my lesson out the window, I'm like, listen, sorry, the Holy Spirit karate chopped me on the way in and we're <laughs> going to do something completely different. And that's the same thing with improvisation. You know, it's funny. It's just all about paying attention. Improv is so much about paying attention and so is vocations, right? So we use this idea of discernment and how do you pay attention? But it's really the same thing in both of these forms. Everything is about paying attention and just being aware and being awake to the world around you and what's happening and what's moving.
0: And you know, just going off of what you said, we we often think about vocation as one and done. And I, you know, I remember, you know, in very early day elementary school, you know, getting the vocations talk, and it did feel like, well, you you choose this path in your life, and then that's the path you go down. And so you're right, we we do think of it, and and many kids think of it as one and done, but Boy, the older you get, I'm telling you, um, you realize vocation is not one and done, and that the path has many, many, many uh, offshoots and tributaries and trees to climb, and you know, you you really never know. So life is actually improv. So vocations, honestly, like it, it all just makes so much sense now. So it's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Okay, so I know that you are. You are doing a um, on-demand session for the virtual library for NCEA Convention 2022. So I want to I want to spend a little bit of time today giving listeners some backstory on how improv can enhance teaching. And so you know let's let's kind of talk through, it. and then they can they'll be able to access your session for examples, and a little bit deeper learning around that, um, if that sounds good to you, we'll just kind of give a high level and, and talk people through what, what this is all about. Sound good?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah, So sure. So
0: yeah, let's, so let's start there. Let's just, let's start with an overview of what improv is, and then how the background concepts and the spontaneity of improv work in the classroom for you.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a great, I think it's a really important place to start is this idea of what improv is, because I think for most people, the word, what improv is, is it's synonymous with sort of fear and terror, and I always talk about, you know, when you hear the word improv, a lot of people want to dig a hole and hide forever, or, you know, the back starts sweating, or like, you know, you feel like you're going to throw up and you want to run away. And so, uh, I think always, but especially in a classroom environment, you, you're, you have to know you're up against that, and then... Uh, of find a way to remedy that so the way that we talk about improv and the answer to that question what is improv uh well for me it is merely agreeing to create something together that never existed before right and that goes back to even what you're saying Colleen, about the this notion that life is improv is like that's that's our life is a series of those moments right where either together with a higher power together with the people around us together with a team we're we're trying to create things that never existed before, and that's really all that improv is, and that's that's important to sort of lay out, especially when trying to launch it into a classroom setting, because if it's not constructed that way, then you lose people right away. Because I'll say, you know, the spontaneity is one thing, but I think the the most notable benefit of using improv in the classroom that I've seen is the leveling of of the playing field. Right, so it, improv is, it's, it's all about acceptance. It's all about participation. It's all about uh, building one another up. So memorization, popularity, athletic ability has very little place in improv. So all of a sudden, as we introduce these ideas, every student in the classroom is on an even playing field. So that, that student who struggles sometimes with traditional styles of learning, all of a sudden it is elevated. And we're seeing this role reversal and and those social statuses start to sort of whittle away in a way that creates or works towards creating, right? This isn't a magic pill or anything, but in a way that works towards creating an environment that is way more conducive to learning than some of our students experience on a daily basis that we just might not be cognizant of because we don't know what their struggles are. We don't know what they're bringing in. And sometimes we don't know what what the social structures are. We don't know what their status is. We don't know who else is in that classroom that has a higher status outside of that classroom that is affecting one's willingness to participate. So I think that the notion of uh, leveling the playing field and leaning into core competencies right, uh, or, or soft skills or whatever you wanna call them. And really bringing those to the forefront is where I see the biggest difference so that it can be students from all different friends groups, from all different extracurriculars, working together to create something that never existed before. And then we laugh at ourselves. And I think that's hugely important in education right now, Right, is the ability to laugh at yourself and to go okay yeah all right i this isn't the end of the world i don't need to put on airs of being some perfect model of a student that has everything figured out i'm allowed to sit here and make a mistake and laugh at myself and do it safely in the context of other people who are here to support me and to lift me up and so when improv gets introduced that way and when it gets used that way in a classroom i think that has been the greatest benefit that i've seen and then it allows for a, a that spontaneity, right? It allows for that um, the ability to follow a group where they're going that day instead of demanding that they follow a roadmap that we might be laying out for them. If that makes sense.
0: How long have you worked in an all-girls Catholic high school, Will?
1: Uh, this is my fifth year here.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the world of female socialization, um, anyway, um, but especially at the junior high and high school levels, those are uh, very interesting places to be. So in what you're describing is, you know, a a way that you can actually help young women to build habits of raising other people up, which goes far beyond the walls of a classroom. And that, that is what young women are supposed to do throughout their lives is raise each other up. So this is much bigger than, than what we're just talking about, you know?
1: Well, yeah. And I think it's also, uh, you know, with the curriculum that I've, uh, been entrusted to teach this idea of world religions, I always set out to think of it as a class in empathy uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more than anything else. And this has been just the best way I've known how to build those skills, because it's part of my life. So like, I'm bringing in who I am. And I think that that sort of has some benefit.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So, okay, so you have, you have uh, five tenants, I think you tell me five tenants of improv that you use in your studio. And that you also use in the classroom. So let's let's talk through what are those five tenets, and then how do they um, how do they make sense in one place as well as in the other?
1: Yeah, sure. So these are these are five. Uh, so we'll start with the studio. We've sort of whittled these down to five, right? Uh, in improv, there's sort of there's endless rules, and there's also no rules, and the rules that do exist are made to be broken, and it goes on and on and on, right? So depending on who you talk to. You can get you know up to 10 different rules or tenants for guidelines, you can get one whatever it is we've we've settled on five. And these five have also we've used in the classroom so what we try to focus on so much with the studio is this idea of applied improvisation so that, in addition to learning a skill set we're also learning. These tenants that can be applied to your everyday life, regardless of what you're doing so the that you are an accountant or a uh, human resources manager or a lawyer or a dentist or a student or a teacher, you can take these ideas and apply them to your life. So then we took that and we just sort of specified it and we broke it down in such a way that we looked at just student and teacher. So it's like, all right, great. If this can be applied everywhere, how can it be applied to the classroom? So the five tenets that we'll go through quickly, and there'll be more of this on that on-demand session, we'll sort of break these open, is the first one is the first rule of improv. Now, this one is universal. So I always say, if you run into anyone who's taken an improv class from, you know, Philly to LA to Dubuque to, you know, wherever in between, if you say, what's the first rule of improv, everyone should likely answer with the phrase, yes, and. So that's the first tenet, this idea of yes, and. And the way that we talk about yes and is acceptance and participation or contribution. So it's just reshaping our our sort of mentality and coming from a place of acceptance with everything. So that we have to recognize that oftentimes as human beings, we're conditioned to say no, it's safer to say no, it's the defense mechanism, it's a protection to come from a place of no because we feel that if we don't say no, it's a threat to our own ideas. And as human beings we love our own ideas so this is challenging us to sort of give up those ideas for the understanding that together you might be able to build a much much better idea if you start from a place of acceptance and then you're also willing to participate so it says to everyone especially in a classroom setting hey what's most important here is the dignity of every human being so we're gonna be a place that accepts what anyone has to offer. And then we're gonna to try to make that better by offering something of ourselves and our own ideas. And then we'll see where we end up. Now, a lot of people will come back and this, be like, oh, what, can't You can't just say yes to everything? And you're absolutely right. There's a time where you'll get down the line and you go, all right, we need to say no to this specific thing, right? We're now in a position where we've yes ended it to a certain extent, and now we need to say no. Okay, totally fine. But the idea is that we always begin the the launching pad is a place of acceptance and contribution or participation. It's also if we think of it as human beings, but think of a time we probably all have, you know, a plethora of these examples where we offered an idea and it was shot down. How quickly are you going to offer another idea in those circumstances? We don't, right? We shut down and we go, All right, I'm not participating in this meeting, this session, whatever it is anymore, because I feel like what i had to offer was rejected so we try to flip the script and instead of coming from a place of negation we come from a place of acceptance so that's the first one and now from there everything else builds so we talk about the second one it's this notion of giving yourself up for the good of the team right and that's a strong offer for a number of reasons one is the idea of selflessness and we know this right uh we aspire to this this notion of selflessness love for one another and that's admirable and that's awesome. The other thing that I talk to my students about all the time is if my number one job is to make everyone else look good, then I'm not thinking about myself and my insecurities. I'm a deeply insecure human being, right? We all are. Uh, And if I come into a classroom and even as a teacher, I go, all right, my job today is only to make every student in front of me look their absolute best then I don't have the time to think about how bushy my eyebrows are, right? The fact that I'm balding, the fact that I gained weight over the pandemic, the fact that I'm 5'5 if I stand up straight on a good day, you know? Like those things don't enter my mind. And so it frees me up from the self-judgment that would often be a roadblock to my own creativity. If I'm not thinking about what I'm insecure about, I'm free to sort of dream as big as possible and not self-edit. So do the, in the girls,
0: Do the girls internalize that? Does that work?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, to a certain extent, right? Uh, and it takes, what I'll say to all of this is like, the consistency of using it is, is important so that it doesn't feel like a one-off uh, for them. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about playing games in the middle of class, but that revisiting these things over and over again. Because I'm sure anybody who has any students, but I think it might be uh, more prevalent in a all-girl environment or a co-ed environment. That this might be a little bit less in an all-male environment is apologizing for your answer before you've even given your answer or qualifying your question and the amount of times and it doesn't do any good the amount of times i hear this is probably a stupid question but and i can say no it's not there's no such thing right we've all heard this no such thing as a dumb question they don't believe that unless they've lived it over the course of a semester a year or whatever of saying like, hey. It's okay to ask a question for any reason whatsoever if I have a question, right? And I don't need to judge it, I don't need to qualify it, I don't need to make pretend that it's a stupid question just to make things uh, deflated and easier so that I don't put myself out there. So that it is, it's sort of when all of these things are built together, then it tends to be a little bit more successful than if you just take this out and say like, hey, don't judge yourself. Right. It's it's about everyone else. Make everyone else look good. That's fine. But unless it is in the context of all of this other stuff, it's not going to do us any good. Right. So the next one that we actually talk about, the next tenet sort of goes off that. And it's ironic because I just talked about asking questions. And the next one is to make statements. And more specifically, the tenant is if you can phrase a question as a statement, do so. So, it doesn't eliminate questions. Good luck trying to eliminate questions from a classroom. You will probably be a very ineffective teacher. But if you're able to encourage and empower students to phrase things as a statement, when a statement is able to be said instead of a question, then it propels things forward. It moves things forward a little bit more uh, speedily than when we ask questions. Um, now, I think it's important to make the distinction between inquiry, which is hugely important, especially with new content, stuff like that. That's not going anywhere. But when somebody believes something, right, in response to the content, in response to new learning, if you have formed a new conviction, phrase that as a statement because it's going to allow for deeper conversation and you're giving someone the opportunity to say yes and to you instead of asking someone to answer a question. So uh, for instance, we always use this idea of, imagine somebody um, you know, comes to you with their hands out and says, what's this? Well, you go, I what, huh? And all of a sudden you're on the spot to tell them what, I don't understand what's happening. Why, what, uh, is it, is, uh, is it a cat? Is it a teddy bear? I don't know what it is. As opposed to if somebody, you know, comes to you with their hands open and says, oh, my gosh, right, I want you to have this fruit basket, whatever it is. Hopefully it's not a fruit basket, but right. And you go, all right, well, at least at the very least, I know I have a fruit basket now and I can yes and that I can decide what to do with that fruit basket. When I've made a statement, I've given you a gift. When I've asked a question, I've sort of put the onus on you to give something back to me. So it's almost like begging for a gift versus giving a gift. And we should focus on the giving of gifts. One of the ways we found to do that is to encourage the making of statements versus the asking of questions, as long as it's not inquiry-based where students are trying to gain a a deeper understanding of new content because we can't cut those questions out.
0: makes sense. Yeah. Uh,
1: so (laughs) um, So the fourth one, this one I absolutely love, and it's kind of timely because of the recent Super Bowl, but this notion of mistakes and embracing mistakes as opportunities, right? And even beyond that's a, that's that. That's
0: a tough one. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's, yep. It's
1: tough for anyone, right? It's tough for mm-hmm. adults. Yes. It's tough for saints, I think, right? Yes. So it's, it's, you know, you could be a perfect person and this is really hard. So what we've done in it instead is, and this is borrowed from uh, an improv troupe that I was lucky to do like a workshop with out in Chicago at Improv Olympic is instead of calling them mistakes, calling them fumbles for a couple of reasons. One, the fumbles feel uh, feels a little bit softer uh, than the word mistakes, especially when we're conditioned to be judged by our mistakes. And two is the analogy to football. So if if you're a football fan, if you've seen a football game, anytime somebody fumbles a football everyone else on the field pounces on that and sees it as an opportunity, right? It is a fumble. The ball has dropped. That was not supposed to happen. But as a result of that happening, a number of positive things can happen because the people around, either on the same team or on a different team, are trying to seize that as an opportunity to do what is best for their team. So we've never seen a, you know, I always joke, I've never seen a football game yet where somebody has fumbled and everyone screams in terror and runs the other way. I've never seen a football game where we stop and we just say, all right, if I don't look at it, it will get smaller and go away, which never happens. Right. That's usually when it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but that just doesn't happen. That it, but it is that notion of we are going to fumble. We are going to fumble along the way, but, when we can view those fumbles as an opportunity for greater success, then it just shifts our mindset a little bit. So this is probably a a controversial one here. But one of the ways to uh, sort of bring this into the classroom and then sort of back it up is to reevaluate how you do assessments, right? is to focus more formative assessments than summative assessments mm-hmm. so that students can see in real life, okay, a fumble is just another step to a greater opportunity. But this one, we tend to, we're working against ourselves a little bit because we got to stand in front of a classroom and be like, hey, mistakes are okay. Mistakes are opportunity. Everyone makes mistakes. And then we hand them back papers where they're literally judged for the mistakes that for their they mistakes. Made. Yes. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so this is, this is a challenging one. I love it. It's my favorite, but it's also probably the most challenging because it's you're you're swimming upstream. You're a salmon here because it is to say that it's great. There are no mistakes. You have to be able to back that up. And one of the ways to back that up is to re forgive the pond, reassess how you assess, right? So it's like, all right, what am I, am I allowing this to be lived? Um, And then the last one, the fifth one, is this notion of bring a brick um, and to extend it in its full existence. It is bring a brick, we'll build the cathedral together. And what this really is about is the permission to not have it all figured out every day, every moment, every time you walk into a classroom, which is, again, a tough one, especially for students in this day and age, depending on the environment you're in. So I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be where I am. It's a wonderful community, but it is a, it's a single sex college prep Catholic education. And if you get a dictionary, that is a direct translation into competitive, Yes. right? It is a highly competitive environment. And so there is a pressure to have everything figured out, or at least to have to, to project that you have everything figured out. So this is another one that um, takes a lot of action to go along with it. But it is that notion of if you're willing to merely bring your brick, whatever it is, each day, without having to have the whole cathedral figured out, then trust that we'll be able to build it together. And even to look at it backwards, if you do try to show up with a cathedral each day, you've left no room for anyone else's brick, right? So especially in a classroom environment, if it's discussion-based, if it's collaborative, if if it's conducive to creation, there has to be room for other people's bricks, right? You just simply cannot do anything if there's not room for other people's bricks because you're saying, okay, It's only my way. I I have it all figured out. I'm showing up with all of this. But then what's the point of coming into the classroom in the first place? Right? If this is going to be a place to explore, then it needs to be a place to explore, not a place to sort of just rest your cathedral and have everyone else have to move their bricks to a different location.
0: That last one you are just talking about, it really, to me, where where my mind goes with that, too, because I spend so much time with... um, system and school leaders is how important that notion is in leadership as well and making sure that everybody knows that they are uh whatever the gifts are that they bring to the table are part of the success of the whole and um you know I, i get like i think about how effective this could be in um in a professional development setting too, and actually that was one of the things I was going to ask you about. So I'm going to segue into that because it's a natural it's a natural flow out of the a conversation about bringing a brick. So I, I'm sure you you probably do some professional development around these concepts well. And when we talked, you mentioned something called the Yes And Challenge. And is this something that you're integrating into professional development? And do you integrate all of these concepts into professional development for people?
1: Yeah, so a huge part of what we do, uh, again, going back to the studio, is mm-hmm. professional development both in the corporate world and in education.
0: Got it. Nice. Uh, and okay. having
1: those those opportunities to again take these tenants and apply them to whatever it is that your work is doing. So um our next uh student assembly. So we're going to be we're doing a student assembly for uh ninth graders coming up soon and we're going to use that as an opportunity to launch this new challenge called the Yes End Challenge. And basically what it is, it's a pay it forward type thing. But from now on, whether it's corporate, whether it's educational, whether it's professional development, any of the workshops we do, are go, it's going to end by everyone getting a card, a Yes End card. And on the front, it says, Yes End. And on the back, it basically says, the original owner of this card, uh, you know, it, it experienced a moment of Yes End, and they've challenged themselves that the next time they're in a position where they would typically respond from a place to know if they respond instead from a place of acceptance they're going to pass that card on to the person who is the beneficiary of that encounter hopefully from our end with an explanation of hey i typically would have come from a place of no here and i just noticed that I did come from a place of yes and let me talk to you about yes and I'm going to give you this card and then you can do with it whatever you want. So the hope is that it spreads the value of acceptance in this world um, and sort of gets that message out there even further than just a workshop. You know what I mean? Because yeah. we've been trying to think of, you know, my wife and I, we started the studio because we believed deep down that improv could ultimately change the world at least a little bit. And so it's like, uh Let's see how we can also continue to do that. So we will not ever be able to do a workshop for every human being. Even every improv company in the world won't be able to do a workshop for every human being. But if the people themselves start talking to one another about it, I think there might be some potential for change for the good. So that's the hope, at least. Uh, but we'll see. It's a new initiative. It might be wildly successful or it might be a fumble. We'll find out. Uh, <laughs> we'll find out with the next assembly.
0: Something tells me you're gonna figure out a way to make that work. I I really uh, I've learned a lot from you. Um, just in the in the couple of conversations that we've had, I've I've really learned so much from you. And like I said, I just taking everything that I've learned about what you do in your classroom, and now really how you can affect, um, not just the education world, but really corporate world. This is these tactics are are more than, um, they're they're more than just tactics and, and you know ways to get things done. it's really a philosophy of how you approach people. It's a philosophy on how you view yourself and um, and how you view yourself in uh, raising other people up and, and making a positive impact with other people. So um, I, I've, I've learned so much I hope that our listeners have learned so much and uh, and that you will inspire them to uh, watch your full, on-demand session and learn more get some more in-depth examples and 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 see you at work because this is not I know that you're a theology teacher this is not just about theology I think we've made that clear this is something that moves beyond the walls of a theology classroom and can work for any teacher or any leader so um, I just want to thank Mr. Will Dennis for joining me today as a guest this has been a fantastic conversation and I want to thank our listeners for joining us for another successful NCEA podcast. Will, anything you want to, uh, any words of wisdom to wrap up before we close?
1: Uh, no, but if, <laughs> if, if, if our relationship ends here, as far as the listeners go, if you don't uh, watch the on-demand thing, which you should, uh, then I hope at least you're inspired to, to pay attention to what opportunities might exist in your life where you can't come from a place of acceptance. Um, I'm not even telling you to to do it. Just pay attention to where the the, the opportunities exist. Uh, Because I think that's the most important thing is to be aware.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for all your words of wisdom and um, all of the educators out there that you've inspired. Uh, To our listeners, click and click subscribe so you can hear a new podcast every Thursday. And until then, this has been the NCEA Podcast.